We are all conditioned to think in certain ways, every one of us, more, more than we realize. We are all conditioned uh, to think in, in certain ways. As an example, uh, if you grow up in a traditional culture, uh, you are conditioned more than you recognize to think more in terms of the collective, the whole, the tribe, the people, your family. That forms so much of your framework in terms of how you respond and engage to life if you're coming from a more traditional culture. If you're coming from a more Western culture, a more individualistically focused culture, then your framework has much less to do with that sort of thing and much more to do with your personal rights, your freedoms, that which will fulfill you. And you don't even recognize it. It's just part of your conditioning. It's been part of the air that you have breathed. It's the soil from which you have come forth. We are conditioned to think in certain ways, and that there, whether it's the traditional, whether it's the more individualistic, the, the personal-based, if you will, um, it forms the grid. It forms the, the ways that we make decisions. It forms the ways that we, the, the goals that we set for ourselves. And again, that's a good, almost like a conditioning. There's good to be found in both. Either one of them in a flash can go sideways. The reason I bring this up is because of the idea of this, this conditioning and, and the way that we think and may not even realize how we think the way that we do and why we think the way that we do is because Jesus comes to us and speaks to us some words that are rather striking and sobering and somewhat humbling if we will have but ears to hear. Because what he's telling us is that not only have we been conditioned to think in certain ways, but in more ways than we realize, those ways are wrong. Those ways are wrong. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, we're pressing on through this study in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is the first of the Gospels, the first book of the New Testament. You have Matthew, you have Mark, Luke, and then John. Matthew 19, uh, we're going to hone in on verses 23 to 30, 23 to 30 of Matthew 19, but we're going to start with the passage that we were looking at last week because that determines so much in terms of it, it just sets the stage for everything that we're about to look at here together this week. So we're going to start in Matthew 19, 16, and read all the way on through verse 30. That's the end of the chapter. So, Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. Hear now the word of God. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And Come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples heard this. They were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to hear now. It is you that have spoken. This is not man's word that we have just heard. This is none other than the word of the living God. We ask that you would till the soil of our hearts, pull up the weeds that would otherwise choke, cultivate, make the soil of our hearts ready, receptive, the seed of the word, that we would then be fruitful and, and richly so. We confess here at the start that there are more weeds, more stones, more stoniness to our heart soil than we even know. There is much there that is an obstacle to receiving, an obstacle to fruitfulness. We pray for your mercy your mercy upon us individually and us as a body this morning. Oh, would you help us to hear. In your name we pray. Amen. Sinkholes. This community would have to know a thing or two about sinkholes. We know what it is to, to see a house or a building that we are accustomed to just see sitting there on the street, out on a block for just years upon years upon years, and then one day, it seems out of nowhere, this cavern opens up beneath, and the entire structure, or partly at least, is just swallowed up and disappears down into this cavern below. And the cry, the hue and cry that oftentimes comes up after such a thing is, that hole came up out of nowhere. That's partly true. It's also partly false. That tr that, okay, suddenly... The hole showed up. That, that's true. But only after years and years and years of what I'll call subterranean erosion that then created the hole and then the suddenness of the disappearance of the structure. Sinkholes ought to teach us something. And by that, I don't just mean be careful where you build. I mean deeper things. If you allow that to be something of, of an image, uh, one would be the reality of increments, and they need to think about that. They need to, to think about the fact that, that over time, small, incremental choices does have an impact, positively or negatively, upon our lives. That would be one. Another uh, would be the danger of appearances. 
On the surface, everything can look just fine. Just fine. On the surface, on the externals, on the outside. When all the while, down beneath, maybe even deep beneath, disaster is looming. Thirdly, related to the second one, the danger of self-deception. For long, a long time, we can be telling ourselves that everything is fine. I'm, stand, I'm in the house. I'm in the building. I don't feel like anything's wrong. Everything's fine. Yet at the same time, we can be blind to a real and present danger, blissfully unaware that we, in fact, are in harm's way. And if anyone on the outside, a third party, is watching our self-deception, if, if, if there's a, a clear-eyed perception, they, they can see what's happening. And if there's a compassion that, that's erupting in any way from their heart towards us, this, this party they can see in harm's way and self-deceive, it's incumbent on them to speak. They can't be silent. They have to speak, right? If, in fact, you see... And if, in fact, you care, you have to speak. Well, that's exactly what we see Jesus doing. Seeing and speaking. Last week, we were looking at this individual we oftentimes refer to as the rich young ruler. We you know, read that again here this morning. And that sets the tone for everything that we see here in this text, and actually it sets the tone for everything that we see in the, in the next text that hopefully we'll have a chance to look at next week. This gentleman, this rich young ruler, uh, comes to Jesus with a sense, clearly, the fact he comes to Jesus, and you can read just intuitively uh, between the lines, the, the conversation, he knows something is wrong. He knows something is missing in his life. And so he comes to Jesus with his questions with his concerns. Jesus, however, in his response makes clear that this man needs far more than just a few additions. He needs far more than just maybe some subtle surfacey renovations. Jesus makes clear, no, what you need is a demolition. Your entire structure is doomed. And we need to blow it up and start from scratch. Well, that's a little much for the guy to hear. And so, as, as Matthew tells us, he, he left. He went away sorrowful or grieving. Why? Because he had great possessions. It was literally too much for him. Well, that then set, that conversation and, and hearing everything that's going on, that sets in motion another round of questions and answers, but now from the disciples. And another, not just questions and answers, but surprises and warnings and warnings. Because he loves us, because he loves his followers then and now, because he loves his followers then and now, because he loves us, Jesus gives some very clear warnings. It's incumbent on us, it's vital that we humble ourselves and hear what he is saying. Because he loves us, Jesus gives us then these clear warnings. We must then humble ourselves and hear what it is that he's got to say. Now, you're saying, well, then what are the warnings? What are the dangers of which he is, he's speaking? Well, there are three. You can see it there in your outline. The first is he's warning us of the danger of wealth, very clearly. Secondly, he's warning us of the danger of works, 
And thirdly, he's warning us of the danger of what I'll call worth. I'll unpack that when we get there. Wealth works wealth. Uh, worth. In and of themselves, nothing wrong with them. The problem is when you ask of them and look to them for things they are not intended to give. Let's look at these in turn. First, the danger of wealth. This is verses, well, I'll start in verse 22 and read on to verse through verse 34. When the young man heard this, everything that Jesus had just said, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This is the first of three series of questions and answers. Now, in this case, the question is unspoken. It's not actually read or heard, but Jesus knows what they're thinking. They have just watched this, they have just heard this, and they're watching this, what looks to be a great addition to the band. A great potential convert. Why are you so harsh on him, Jesus? They've watched, they've watched, they've heard. The guy is now, all they see is his back, leaving. Leaving, sorrowful. And this is the question that they have to be asking. What in the world just happened here? What in the world just happened here? And Jesus is answering that question by warning us first of the, the, well, the danger of wealth and speaking to the effect of money that it can have and sadly often does have upon the human heart. Money, wealth, our material things has a way of spinning up within us in the worst sense, in the worst sense, a spirit of, of independence, setting us apart from creating barriers, uh, walls, whatever whatever amount it is that we're chasing after and however hard it is that we're holding on to however much it is that we have accumulated, it has a way of separating us from one another and even worse, and at the root, from God himself. And not just a spirit of independence, but a, a, a spirit of a sense of overconfidence. And you think how prone we are after a period of time. And, and I'm not, we've, if we haven't said it, we've heard it. Look what I've done. Look what I've amassed. Look what I've accomplished. And who's the subject of every one of those sentences? Overconfidence. Confidence in, in, in self. A, a, an air of self-sufficiency and self-reliance that is simply not in tune with reality. All this self. And the repercussions of all of that, Jesus is saying, affects negatively our access, our entry into the kingdom. He cannot say it any more clearly or strongly than he does here. He says, literally, it's with great difficulty the wealthy, the rich, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It is hard. It is hard. Older translations say they will hardly enter. It is hard. And it is hard for us to hear that. It is hard for us to hear what Jesus is saying here. We're tone deaf to it. And because of that, he then doesn't just make a bald, blunt, forceful statement. He then puts before us this vivid image, this metaphor 
of, of the largest land animal in the region trying to pass through the smallest opening in a normal household. And that's what he says it's like. It's an absurd image. It's meant to be. Absolutely absurd. It's meant to be. It's impossible. It's impossible. The camel left to itself, if you will. So Jesus is speaking here so candidly, so strongly, so forcefully, out of love, warning us of the danger, the danger of, of wealth. Now, before we go into to the next warning, we have to just stop here and say this, and that is it's never just about the money. It's never just about the money. When I'm doing premarital counsel, we have to talk about that. Your fight's about money. is never about money. It's about what you think is important. You say spend, I say save. You say old car, I say new car. You say old house, you say stay in this house. I mean, all those things. It's not about money. It's about priorities, about what your values, what your goals are. It's never about Money, But we could probably do well to go even further and to say that, that money, yes, can be an idol. And by that I mean a, a God substitute. Something else in our lives that we will put our hope and trust in, that we will worship and serve, that we will run after and chase after and rely upon and give the primacy of space in our hearts. Money can be that. But in a sense, it's what some very wise commentators have referred to as a surface idol. In that sense, money is just a surface idol. Because beneath that are what are referred to as deeper idols that manifest themselves in the chasing after and the clutching of money. And here's what I mean by that. Here's what some of the deeper idols are in our hearts. For some of us, what money really is, is security and control. Or it's power and influence. Or it's comfort and ease. Or it's approval and affirmation. And it's a longing, an inordinate longing for those things that we then chase after and clutch onto money and material things. We have to examine our hearts in these things. It's no wonder John Calvin so wisely described the human heart as being an idle factory. My friends, it is not a, ma- it is not a question this morning of whether or not you are struggling with one of those idols. That is off the table. The question of if. The question is what? What and how? Jesus, in his love for us, is warning us. We need to humble ourselves and hear what he's saying. That's the first thing, the danger of wealth. Well, that then sets in motion a whole new battery of questions and answers. Now the disciples are really stirred up. Now they're really confused, and they are in 
distress. And so we then pick up where we left off and go to verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. What Jesus is doing here is shredding our simplistic formulations when it comes to spiritual matters. And here's what's going on for the disciples in, in that moment. In those times, there was a, a, an equivalency drawn, just a tight bond between, if, it, it, between wealth and God's blessing, meaning if you are wealthy, you are the recipient of God's blessing. You had to be. God must have approved of whatever it is about, something about you, such that you then had this wealth, okay? Or put it another way, live a good life, get a good life. That's the mentality. So many in first century Judaism, okay? And so they're seeing this guy as being a rich man, and Jesus is saying this rich man, who ostensibly is greatly approved of by God, can hardly be saved. Do you see the disjunction in, in their minds and their thoughts? Because Jesus is just blowing that, that whole circuitry up, just, sh just shredding it, leaving nothing to it. Well, we may think, well, that's just stupid. I mean, who in the world would be so simplistic in their understanding of leave a good life, live a good life and get a good life? I mean, who would ever think that? We do. In everything, that's how we think. And we are very well trained in this. We are, going back to how we started, conditioned in this. Train hard, make the team. Study hard, get the grades. Work hard, get the job. And all those things, I mean, it's just part of how the world works. All those things are, of course, true in all those arenas, but they're completely untrue in the economy of God's kingdom when it comes to entry into his kingdom. Completely so. So the disciples find themselves saying, if this guy can't be saved. Who can? Can anyone? And two, into that simplistic formula by which they are operating, Jesus then speaks with this exclusive solution, meaning he alone can save. He alone is the answer to the question. It's monergistic, if I can put it that way. Mono, one side, energistic, accomplishing, acting, doing something. Hey, guys, can we kill that video? It's really distracting to me. I'm sorry. I don't know what that is, but it's not what's back there. <laughs> um, he has to save us. He has to save us. The one who made us alone can remake us. He has to save us. He's the only one who can. And not only that, he has to show us that he has to save us. He has to save us, and he has to be the one to show us that he has to save us. The one who formed us in our mother's womb is the only one that can give us eyes with which to see. The only one that can give us the heart 
the only one that can bring this kind of change, rebirth. All of that is to say, Jesus is speaking here very clearly and out of love, the danger of wealth and the danger of works, relying on the wealth, relying on the works, the great, great danger of these things. Let me come back to that term I threw out there a moment ago. I hope it got your attention, exclusivity, the exclusivity of God's solution in in all of this. That, of course, is a rather offensive concept in our time. And maybe some of you are a little feeling like an allergic reaction, even as I say that. It is, yes, offensive, and also at the same time, essential. Absolutely essential. You see, just hang with me here for a moment. According to Jesus, according to Jesus, the nature of the problem that we have is there's only one solution. There is no other solution, hence the exclusivity, because of the nature of the problem that we have. He alone is the solution to that problem. If the problem is just information, then we just need more enlightenment. If the problem, like this man thought, was just a messed up moral record, then we just need to do a few more right things. But that's not the problem. The problem is not something outside of us. The problem is something within us. And because the problem is within us, there's nothing we can do to fix this. It's only him. It's only him. Let me come at it a different way. Let's say you go to the doctor, and she diagnoses you with a, a, uh, a rare, particular disease, and it's going to kill you. At the same time, fortunately, in that appointment, she also says, I also have a rare, particular cure for you. And if you will simply go through this treatment, you will live. Now, let me ask you. How do you respond to that? Do you gnash your teeth and shake your fist at her and storm out of the room and saying, I'm offended by the exclusivity of your solution and cure and treatment? Or do you recognize that without this, because of my condition, the nature of my problem, I'm going to die? But this is the one particular cure. That's what Jesus is speaking of here. That's what he is warning us of here. The danger of works. He loves us enough to warn us so. Oh, that we would humble ourselves and hear this. There's one more, one more danger that we see here. It's the third series of questions and the third answer. It's very clear, the danger of worth. Let me read this and let's unpack it from there. Starting at verse 27. Because of what now has just been said, you can see it's almost like dominoes. One thing leads to another, which leads to another. Verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last 
and the last verse. Here's what's happening in Peter's mind. He's just heard what Jesus has said regarding the danger of works. He's gotten it, kind of. But here's how he's responding. Okay, wait a minute. It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter what we do, but we've done so much. It doesn't matter what we do, but Jesus, we've done so much. So, so now what? This is what our friends on the other side of the pond would call a rather cheeky response. And you could imagine, I would not respond nearly as graciously as Jesus does. But he does, beautifully so. And, and what we're, we're reminded of and assured of here is just amazing. So he, he begins with this amazing assurance. He speaks of a renewal that is to come. As Jesus is quoted saying elsewhere in Revelation, I am making all things new. That is coming, that promise, that assurance, not just of his making his, his followers individually new, but the whole of his creation, the whole cosmos made new. But not just a renewal. He doesn't just assure us of that. He also assures us of rewards. One of which, he alludes to it very just quickly, is, is uh, this idea of ruling and governing. As somehow, and, and commentators differ in terms of, and I don't want to drill down too far in the weeds on this, but it, it could be that he is speaking here of a, of, a, of a shared ruling and governing of the 12 that they will have with him. It could be a shared governing and ruling that all of his followers will have with him one day. Either way, the chaos and craziness of this age is coming to an end. This renewal and this, these rewards and the ruling that is coming in with that. But not just that, a receiving. Jesus is promising and assuring us of a receiving, a rich compensation, a counterbalance that he is promising and assures us of here, where everything dear that has been lost in this life will be more than made up for in the next. He's saying, look, those of you who for my name's sake have given up what you felt to be in the world said were the greatest things, I assure you, there is yet greater to come. Partly, even in this life, definitively and fully in the next. It's an amazing assurance. And this is the cure for the hoarding heart. The hoarding heart. Some of you may know people who are afflicted by this. You may have family members. You may have seen the TV shows that now, you know, frankly are, I don't know what the right way to put this is, um, capitalizing on other people's hurt. Um, let's make an entertainment out of it. Um, researchers are seeing more and more that there's more going on with the hoarder than people tend to just think. It's not just, oh, they're materialistic. Or they're just nostalgic and just can't get over it. Just, just change. Just move on. It's not just that. I mean, it is that, but it's not just that. 
What research is showing is that across the board, oftentimes the theme of the heart, the ache, the wound, is a longing for security, a longing for safety. And that's what's going on. Jesus is offering for all of us hoarders, which is really everyone in the room, longing for safety, longing for security. Jesus is offering the cure for the hoarding heart. Here are these assurances that he is giving of what is coming. What is coming. But it's not just that. It's not just the amazing assurance. He does speak also with a sobering reminder. And we need to pay heed to this as well. Verse 30, the last verse of the chapter. But many, after everything he said, the assurance, the promise of what's coming, the hope, but many who are first will be last and the last first. This is a proverbial statement. It's not the only time that Jesus says such things. It's alluding to that in God's economy, his ways are not our ways. There are always going to be surprises. He upends our priorities and our ways of thinking. Specifically, though, hearkening back to Peter's question, the reason Jesus says this, and he's going to tell a parable that hopefully we'll get to unpack a bit next week, is because of what he's saying here, to unpack that a little bit more. But coming back to Peter's question, what he's, in essence, he is saying here is, Peter, the rewards are real. But it is all of my grace. The rewards of which I speak are real, but they are all of my grace. There is not a thing that he speaks of here that we earn. There's not a thing that he is assuring us here in terms of these rewards and the renewal and everything else that we can lay claim to as though we earned it, deserved it, had it coming. And that's what the, where the danger of worth comes into play. And it's very easy to lose our footing in this. We're marking Orphan Sunday here today. And I want to speak to that and every other effort to radically give and respond to Jesus' radical love for us. Maybe that could, could just manifest itself in, in a, a spirit and an effort of denying your God-given desires in some arena. Maybe it's, it's giving way past your tithe, just incredibly generously, Maybe it's taking the initiative and the burden upon yourself to, to move into a troubled relationship, and you're seeking no credit whatsoever. You're just trying to see this thing mended. The only way we can do that or anything like the, these, these radical responses to Jesus' grace in our lives is to twofold, looking back to what it is that he has done, and it's a response to that, and looking forward to the renewal and the rewards to come. And therein we respond with that, that hope in mind as well. Those, looking back and looking forward, that's the spirit in which we would take such steps, radical steps of obedience and trust. But never with a sense of rights, with what I am now due for this radical step of trust and obedience. We go there very quickly. We slip.
slide and slip there very easily. So again, because Jesus loves us so, he warns us. We need to humble ourselves and hear him. This may be a surprise to you, but there's another way of seeing all of this. I'm going to end just on this for time's sake. Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler. Jesus himself is actually the ultimate rich young ruler in all of this. However, he did not look at what was in front of him, at the cost involved, and then turn away. And his was eternal wealth and treasure beyond our fathoming, honor and glory and joy that he leaves behind, that he gives completely away to the poor, the poorest of the poor, us. He is the ultimate rich young ruler. It can only then be out of love, knowing that, seeing that. It can only then be out of love that he gives us these warnings. These warnings regarding the wealth and the works and the worth. The warnings regarding our foolish self-dependency and self-reliance and self-sufficiency. It can only be out of love that he speaks so strongly and so clearly to us. And knowing that he is speaking only out of love means that not only we have to hear him, but we can. We can. pray. Lord, you have told us to come as children in all humility and trust and dependence upon you, to come as children with childlikeness, but not childishness. Ah, the, the wealth, the works, the worth, they have their place. Truly they do. We are so quick to place our identity and our value and our reliance upon these things. Oh, would you have mercy? Would you help us to examine our hearts? May we hear your warnings and follow you. And follow you. Pray in your name. Amen.